Apollo Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I was telling the follow-up to the story about how I, I needed to get a little prescription filled for my dog, and so we, we did it at, at, a, at a drugstore because it's a people prescription, and you cut it into quarters and things like that, so it's fine, and people are telling me you know, where, where you can get deals on prescriptions. It's, I appreciate that. That was 12 bucks. And but here's one of the interesting texts. That, now, Jeff, now that Sasha has a prescription number at Walgreens, the next step is to get her a Social Security number. Then you have a year-end tax deduction that you can claim as a dependent. End it. Huh. Don't, I, I don't think it's going to go that far, but I, I appreciate the um I, I appreciate the sentiments and the thoughts behind it. It's just it, it just again, it's the little things in life. I'm thinking, huh, when I go to pick up the prescription, I give them my name. You think it's going to be under my name, but it's not. And I I, I understand they, they they track this stuff. You create a special profile for the dog so they can manage like drug interactions and stuff like that. I guess it, it makes sense. It just Never occurred to me that that's how that stuff worked. All right, let us get started. A lot of ground to cover on today's program. You will remember a week or two ago, we talked about the Milwaukee aldermen. There were two of them, an ald- uh, alderman and alder women, who were asking the city attorney to advise as to what legal action they could perhaps take against the manufacturers of uh, Hyundai and Kia vehicles because of the large number of those vehicles that were being stolen. Now, these were the same aldermen that a couple months ago blamed the theft problem in the city of Milwaukee on on these car manufacturers because, without going into detail, these cars are easier to steal than other cars. It doesn't mean you can't steal other cars, but they're easier to steal. But rather than confronting the issue that you have out-of-control car theft, the idea was let's blame the manufacturers. And I think most of us recognize that that was pretty darn ridiculous. You know, if you gain weight over the holidays, are we going to blame Racine Kringle because it's too good? You know, we shouldn't have eaten it. Oh, by the way, we've hit an interesting number, and I'm surprised we've hit it this quickly. Um, As of today, just pulled up the most recent statistics from the city of Milwaukee on automobile thefts. We have now topped 10,000 automobile thefts. There have been 10,000 cars stolen from the mean streets of Milwaukee, actually 10,028. That compares with 4,093 the same time last year, already over 10,000. And the staggering detail that we've been talking about for the last couple weeks is the city of Chicago, the city of Chicago, which has about 2.7 million people, and the city of Milwaukee, which has slightly under 600,000. So you're talking about roughly, you know, four and a half times. Chicago, just four and a half times as large. In the aggregate, I'm not talking per capita. I'm talking the aggregate. Chicago has a couple hundred fewer cars that have been stolen this year than the city of Milwaukee. 
Chicago, the last time I checked the numbers, I had like, like 9,700 cars stolen. We have 10,000. So I get it's not adjusted for population. We're one quarter the size of Chicago, and we have more cars that are stolen. And you have an alderman and an older woman who are blaming the car manufacturers. Well, okay, here, here's a flash lesson. They sell Kias and Hyundais in Chicago, Okay. They sell those cars in Chicago just like they sell them in Milwaukee, and yet we, we have th- this rush of car thieves. And we've talked about the problems, and we, we all understand it. About half the car thieves who have been caught this year are 16 and under, and, and nothing happens to them. They're, they're turned loose on the street over and over and over again. There's absolutely no accountability. 10,000, and we've still got another two weeks plus left in the uh, in the year. I I I, just, I wouldn't be surprised if we hit eleven thousand. I, I would not be surprised. And of course, meanwhile, you have everybody that just twiddles their thumb and pretends that there's no problem. But the, the reaction in City Hall and the reaction among the Common Council is to blame the car manufacturers because all these cars are stolen. Well, why do you do it? Well, because it's easier than confronting the reality that you have an out-of-control criminal element, particularly a criminal element among juveniles, that isn't held accountable. So we, we try to pretend that this whole problem just doesn't exist. Well, all right, we, we realize that that is ridiculous, but that is not that attitude of let's blame somebody else is not unique, I guess, to liberal members of urban I know, city halls. And the latest example of that comes out of Chicago. The mayor in Chicago is a woman named Lori Lightfoot, who is going to be a one-termer. She's been a complete and total disaster. But in addition to car thefts, one of the problems that you have seen in, in large urban areas in particular is that the whole idea of the, these massive smash-and-grab theft situations. And you've undoubtedly seen the news reports. It's been a big problem in San Francisco. It's been a big problem in New York. It's been a big problem in Los Angeles. It's been a problem in Denver. It's been a problem in Minneapolis. And it it's, involves these like large, like for want of a better description, flash mobs who will pull up in, into a shopping mall or outside a, a big a jewelry store or something like that. But sometimes it doesn't even have to be the high-end stores. And they've got baseball bats and they've got crowbars and they go running in and everybody's wearing hoodies and masks and they break the counters and jewelry counters and they steal a whole bunch of stuff and they're gone in a couple minutes. These huge smash and grab robberies that are 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 causing some retailers to rethink their business decisions as to where they stay open. In addition, it's scaring the heck out of shoppers. We talked about it, I think, during this hour of the program yesterday. But you have people that are just afraid to go shopping. The the Magnificent Mile, downtown Michigan Avenue, downtown Chicago, they... They're having a huge problem attracting Christmas shoppers because people are scared as heck to go down there and get caught in the middle of the thing. Not unlike what is going on, for example, at Southridge Mall, where you have had some very high-profile carjackings in the middle of the day. A week ago, about this time, you had a, a woman, I believe it was a woman, who parks her, she was driving a Mercedes, she parks the Mercedes outside the TJ Maxx store. She comes out, she's... she's carjacked at gunpoint her car is stolen all right later on the next day about uh, 4 30 in the afternoon 
the car, the stolen car, comes back with three other armed people in it. So there's four people in it, and they, they carjack another car. So, I mean, the, the carjackers, the thieves, are so brazen that they literally return to the scene of the crime, driving the stolen car, and use that to steal even more cars. And the effect is, and we were talking about this, there's a lot of people that are just, they're not going, they're not going to places like Southridge anymore because they are afraid for their lives. So what, what do we do in a situation like this? How, how do you deal with this? Well, that brings me to Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, who is confronted with this idea that you have all these smash-and-grab flash mobs and stuff that are committing these large-scale robberies. So what is her response? Well, channeling the Milwaukee response, that the reason we have 10,000 car thefts is the fact that these cars are stu- too easy to steal, Mayor Lightfoot has decided that the responsibility for this retail crime wave that is sweeping Chicago, well, it's it's the stores. This Yes, it is the stores. The stores are the ones who are responsible for being <clears throat> stolen. She says what the stores need to do is the stores need to have more security guards at the door, more entrance cameras, more merchandise either chained or roped or put behind glass and customers being buzzed into stores. So in other words, it's the store's fault that they have display cases of goods that are available to purchase that people can see. It's the store's fault that they have display cases of purchases, stuff that people can actually like pick up and touch. It's the store's fault that they aren't buzzing people in. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you had a setup on, say, Michigan Avenue where you, you know, you had to buzz each person in and somebody at a desk somewhere had to make the decision about who they were going to buzz in and who they weren't going to buzz in? Gee, what could possibly go wrong with that? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, so the mayor of Chicago is saying it's the store's problem because they need to lock up all the stuff. The fact that people can access that, and even if you lock it up, it doesn't necessarily make any difference because if you look at some of these people, they come in with crowbars and baseball bats and they break the display cases anyways. But the idea is it's the store's fault. The stores need to do more to protect themselves. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I call bull on that. Just like blaming the car manufacturers for the rash of car thefts, to blame the stores that are in business of selling stuff and saying, well, you need to buzz people in or you need to have stuff locked up under lock and key or not accessible to shoppers. That's not the problem. The problem is you have a criminal element that's allowed to run out of control. Agree or disagree? 855-616-1620. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I'm sorry, this just makes my head explode. Look, the, the only, one of the only advantages that brick and mortar traditional stores have over, over the internet shopping now is there are people that like to go in. They like to see. They like to feel. They like to touch items. And so if, if you say, okay, you can't do that anymore because we've got all these thieves that are there. So any high end product has to be behind a counter. So you can't just touch it and you have to find a sales associate and then they have to like show it to you and they have to supervise you where you hold it. And we're going to treat you like a thief that you want to talk about something that's going to kill the last vestiges of retail shopping. That's it. And as far as her idea, 
idea saying, well, maybe what we need to do is you need to be buzzed in individually for these stores. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine the racial profiling things? Well, you know, they didn't buzz me in, but they buzzed somebody else in. Can you imagine what a nightmare that would be for stores if you were going to decide on a case-by-case basis who could come in? 855-616-1620. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Okay, what's this idea? How about this idea? I mean, should is it the store's fault that they're being victimized by all these smash-and-grab robberies? So, as I told the screener, um, when I first heard this story, I believe it was yesterday, I just about flipped my lid when I heard her first say that. I was like, you're out of your mind. Um, but then she did add more to it. Um, she did mention that they have increased patrols. Um, they are... And then today, this morning, she was talking about how they really have to prosecute. Now, there's been a little rift between um, Lori Lightfoot and the uh, Cook County State's Attorney, Kim Fox, who also doesn't make very good news. Right. Um, Dee has been very soft on crime, and Lori Lightfoot has called her out more than once. I'm no big fan of Lori Lightfoot. There's been a few things that she's done that I thought were outrageous. But um, I think she's trying, as far as letting people in, by buzzing them in, that is absolutely ludicrous. There would be a lawsuit filed within one day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thanks for so, calling, Mike. No, I'm sorry. Your, your cell phone was cutting out there. Yeah, there'd be a lawsuit filed in one day. Look, I mean, this. if the idea is that you want stores to increase security, Okay, I, I mean, I, I understand that. And I guess that the problem is you can't turn shopping centers, you can't turn, you know, department stores, you can't turn, you know, um, these places into armed camps because nobody's going to go to it if it's that point. I mean, we, we depend on, you know, again, people being able to move freely. And the fact that this is being necessitated because you've got out-of-control criminals, to me, that that's what the issue is. You, you start by saying, okay, we're going to make this a priority. And, and yeah, we're going to prosecute shoplifters, and we're sure as heck going to prosecute the, these mobs of people that show up. Jeff, in California, they're putting concertina wire in the streets outside high-end stores to stop smash and grab. Maybe they should do that. Can you imagine? Okay, can you imagine? I mean, think about Michigan Avenue in, in downtown Chicago. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put concertina wire. Why do we leave it at concertina wire? How about barbed wire? We'll put it up all along the storefronts to stop people. People from going in oh, that's that that's going to really encourage people to want to go shopping in a particular place isn't it let's talk to um james in whitefish bay james you're on wtmj hello hey jeff uh, i totally agree with what you're saying in in the sense that you know we got to do everything we can to facilitate people shopping at traditional retail outlets and one element of this story that i think is under considered is you know, the, the reason that these gangs are so organized and they're stealing these, uh, you know, over-the-counter medications and other niche items like that is because they're able to resell them online yes. through online retailers like Amazon. And, and my opinion is that, you know, obviously we shouldn't do anything to increase the burden on brick-and-mortar retailers. And if anything, Amazon retailers should have to verify that they're not receiving stolen property. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. It used to be that when you stole stuff, let's talk about electronics. It used to be that you you know, you'd you'd show up with a truck in an alley somewhere, and you know, somebody would go into a bar and say, "Hey, anybody want to come out and look for radios or whatever?" Well, nowadays you're exactly right. You don't have to do that. Nowadays you put all the stuff up on one of the different you know internet sales things, and and people can buy it. No, thanks. You're exactly right. I mean that's that, that there's it's one of the things I think that's leading to 
the the large number of particularly high-end stores that are being stolen is that it's easier to fence that now than it ever was. And so I appreciate that, but, which to me is all the more reason why at all the different chain, le- at all the different levels of, of these criminal enterprises, and that's what they are, criminal enterprises, you, you need to have aggressive prosecution. Again, this is another example, just like the, the juvenile justice laws. This is, when, when it comes to shoplifting and retail theft and things like this, I, I think there's an attitude among some politicians that, first of all, we don't want to deal with it because we'd be locking up a certain percentage of our constituents and and maybe there'd be too many of this type of person or that type of person and so we don't want to deal with that so that's issue number one but issue number two there's this kind of attitude that this is kind of a victimless crime and okay so somebody goes in and they steal certain amounts of stuff from a walgreens or from a target or whatever that's really a victimless crime they've got insurance and things like that it's not a big deal well this is escalated to the level it is a big deal and you look at for example what goes on in san francisco in in san francisco Dozens, and I, I can check me on the number, but dozens, I believe, of Walgreens, for example, pharmacies are closing in certain high crime areas because, again, the theft level is so out of control. So that's how businesses respond to it. And then people in the community say, well, okay, where am I going to go to fill my prescriptions and things like that? And, and they have a legitimate beef. But the problem is, the out-of-control theft that we allow to occur is part of the reason why people can't have nice things. Let's talk to Linda in Milwaukee. Linda, you're on WTMJ. Oh, hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, I, just like I told you, call screener, some of the responsibility is on the stores. I work part-time at a national retailer. The policy is if someone shoplifts, you cannot stop them. Right. I had I actually had a friend that was um, a dear friend that was a greeter at the door. She saw one person walk past. By the time she turned around again, she saw the guy coming with a shopping cart, put her hand on the shopping cart, and she was terminated. Yep. So the word is on the street that they can go in and steal, and nothing is going to happen. Yep. Yep. Nothing. I, no, and it, it's frustrating. No, Linda, th- thanks for calling. And the reason the stores do that, and I'm not justifying this decision, is they, they, they don't want a customer getting hurt. They don't want an employee getting hurt. And so what they do is they instruct the greeter in this case, you're, you're, even the security people, you're not supposed to get physically involved. You just document it and you try to, and then you call the police. Well, the problem is the police don't do anything. And it's not a criticism of the police because they're busy, but you know that even if they arrest somebody, they're not going to get prosecuted. And even if they do get prosecuted, nothing's going to happen to them. And, and it's this huge this huge cycle of, of misconduct that's out there that allows this to happen, and we all pay more in, in costs. But I think you have to take a look at the overall system and recognize that this is a big deal. And if you're going to save retail, if you're going to save traditional retail stores, you, you've got to figure out a way to stop the crime. But for people, whether it's aldermen in Milwaukee that want to blame the car manufacturers for the 10,000 cars that have been stolen, or whether it's the mayor of Chicago who wants to blame the stores for the smash and grabs, you got to put the blame where the blame lies, and that is on the bad guys. Why is that so hard to say? This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. Okay, Melissa Barclay, bear with me for a minute. I don't know if I'm going to step on your lead or not for your newscast. But but when we talk about crime, by the way, it, it's not just like the car thefts that are out of control. Here's the deal. 
the all time before last year, the all time record for homicides in the city of Milwaukee was in 1991, 165 homicides. And I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office then, and I'll tell you, a lot of that was, was gang-related because that was when you had the big, uh, the, the big explosion of crack cocaine and you had a lot of street gangs that were shooting each other up on the streets and then they were shooting up houses. But 1991, you had 165 homicides, which was, that, that stood as the largest number of homicides. 1991, it stood until last year. Last year, 190 people were murdered, homicides, on the mean streets of Milwaukee. 190. So that blew away the, the record that had been there for 30 years. And this is not a record that people want to you know, top. Okay, so the hope was that's a unique situation. 190 homicides, that's just a one-off, can't happen again. All right, as of the newest numbers released right now, we are at 192 homicides for the city of Milwaukee. With two-plus weeks left in the year, we are already two homicides over the the 2020 total, which was an all-time record by 15%. 192 homicides. I mean, over 10,000 car thefts. Don't even make me go through the other categories. And meanwhile, we have all these politicians that are just kind of like twiddling their thumbs. You've got a district attorney who is justifying this catch and release policy. You've got the court system that is pretending there's no problem. Meanwhile, the people in the city of Milwaukee are victimized on a daily basis. 192 homicides. And, you know, what are the bets that that's going to top 200 before the end of the year? Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Get your tickets now for Wisconsin's ultimate drive-through holiday experience. WTMJ is proud to support Capco's Kids to Kids Christmas Wonderland in Grafton. Enjoy millions of lights, three mesmerizing light tunnels, hundreds of inflatables, a rink for ice skating, villagers, a nativity scene, and much, much more to secure your spot now. Text the word Christmas to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. It's Capco's Kids to Kids Christmas Wonderland in Grafton. Well, obviously, we'll talk more about that over the next couple weeks, but it's just it is just staggering to me 192 homicides in milwaukee it's just that that is that is unthinkable and we will probably unfortunately top 200 wouldn't be surprised if you see you know 11,000 cars that are stolen meanwhile you know tom barrett's trying to figure out you know what he what where the good restaurants are in luxembourg you've got everybody else trying to figure out you know gee they uh how can they move into the you know the mayor's office after barrett leaves meanwhile on the mean streets of milwaukee cars get stolen people get killed and nobody seems to really care which is so frustrating all right, let's switch gears. My um, my wife grew up in, she spent her entire working career in, in the restaurant industry. And so one of one of the things that we will do from time to time is if, if we're at a place, we she has been known to ask like the server or the bartender how how tips are handled at, at, at different places because, I mean, is it a situation where you have to share the tips among the servers? Is it a situation where you share the tips with the, the people that are at the back of the house, et cetera, et cetera? How does it work? Because sometimes, you know, if, 
if it's a situation where you have a particularly good, great server, you, you want to maybe give them a little bit extra. And, and so she's, it's not uncommon for her to just kind of ask from time to time, you know, how, how do you handle tips? It, it's not unusual to do that. And, and almost always the, the servers you know, tell her that that's, that's it. And I think, I guess I think that that's a, a reasonable sort of thing. I think, you know, you, you, if you're deciding, you know, what a kind of tip to leave, I think you should have a right to know, you know, how that's going to be distributed. Okay, so here's the deal. And this story is getting national attention. It comes from a restaurant called The Oven and Tap in Bentonville, Arkansas. And there's a regular customer there. His name is Grant Wise. Don't worry about the names necessarily. But this, I get the idea that this is a pretty upscale restaurant. And so this, this customer goes into this restaurant a lot of times during the course of the year and always or almost always asks for the the same server. Um, her name is, is Ryan. That's her name. She almost always asks for the he always, always asks for the same server. They have a favorite, you know, waitress in this case. And so what happens is he decides he's going to bring in a party of like 32 people, and they're going to have kind of a Christmas party and things like that. And he calls up and he asks for his favorite waitress. So they give him his favorite waitress, and they give him, you know, there's one or two other people that are are working the table. So at the end of the meal, the customer says, here's the deal. He says to all the different guests, all right, I want you to each throw in $100 that we're going to put in for a tip. And then he adds like a thousand. So the bottom line is they get four thousand four hundred dollars together and they give it to their favorite waitress and a couple of the other servers who were working that night. And, you know, that, that's that's the, the whole idea. That's what they they want to do. They, they But their intention was to give it to them. Okay, so here's where this whole thing, you know, gets complicated. All right, so the guy, the the, the guy who left the tip, said he had called the restaurant beforehand to ask, you know, first of all, he wanted this particular waitress. And secondly, he said, I want to know what your tipping policy is because I I want to give her, I want to give her the the money. This is it. And, And the other people that end up working the table. Okay, so he says he called and asked before that. So they leave forty four hundred dollars. Well, what happens is after they they leave, apparently um, the waitress, you know, goes in and says, hey, look, here, here's. Here, here's we, we got this guy left a forty four hundred dollar tip for us and they were directed at us. And the manager says, no, you can't keep it. What you have to do is you have to split it among the bartenders and the cooks and the, the food runners. That That's what you're going to have to do. And apparently, normally, the way it works is 7% of a server's food and beverage sales are automatically deducted from their paychecks to pay those people while the tips are left untouched. If you leave a cash tip... That goes into the waitress's pocket or the waiter's pocket, whereas you put it on the credit card, they deduct 7%. So anyhow, the intent that this guy had in leaving this money was he wanted it to go to the, the servers. And he told, at least he says, he told the restaurant that that was going to happen. So after this this all happens, the waitress then apparently tells the customer, um, I, I, I really appreciate that this tip... Um, just so you know, I wasn't allowed to keep it all. 
they they made me they're going to make us split this with all sorts of other people at which point in time the customer kind of goes ballistic and and says this is not what this arrangement was and you know ends up complaining to management management then gives him the tip back and then he gives the server he gives like this waitress 2200 bucks and he gives some of the other waitresses a lot less than that and he walks out okay and end of the story customer now he's at least been able to give the money directly to the waitress following me so far all right here's where it gets interesting the restaurant then fires the waitress fires the waitress and the reason the restaurant fires the waitress is because she told the customer what the tip policy was and the fact that she was not going to be able to keep the entire tip. So the restaurant gets mad at the waitress for essentially telling the customer that what he was trying to do, give you know his favorite waitress his money, that that wasn't working out. So even though the restaurant ultimately allowed him to do it, they got mad at her for telling the customer that what you were trying to do wasn't going to be allowed to be permitted to occur. So now this restaurant fires the waitress. Okay, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Should she have been fired? Apparently what the wait, the restaurant says for large parties, the restaurant decides how to handle tips on a case by case basis. So there, there's no set rule. They wanted to take 7% off the top. That was not what the customer in this case wanted. The waitress has been fired for telling the customer what was going to happen to his money. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All I can tell you is that somebody who, again, with my wife, periodically will ask servers, you know, what, what they do with tips. How, how is this going to be handled? Because that may determine, you know, how much of a particular tip we leave in a certain circumstance. If I found out that the the waiter or waitress, the server that I was intending to give some money to was fired because they told me what was going to happen to my money, I would be outraged at the restaurant. The restaurant is now threatening, not only did they fire the server, they're threatening to sue her because since this story went public, well, as you can expect, they're getting a ton of bad press. 855-616-1620, should she have been fired for telling the customer what was going to happen to his tip, and in particular, telling the customer that what he intended to happen wasn't going to. 855-616-1620, we discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, here's an interesting perspective on it. Uh, Jeff, I think they're wrong to fire her, but I, I don't think they have a cause. However, I think she was greedy, and I think that's disgusting, and I wouldn't want to work with anyone that wasn't willing to share that type of tip in the first place. I was a waitress for 25 years at a restaurant in, in Brookfield. I had customers that left me ge- very generous tips, especially around the holidays. I've always been tipped. My, I always tip my food runners, bartenders, and cooks a little extra as a thank you. Well, I, I understand that perspective on that and that's maybe an interesting take on it at the same time the the customer who was leaving the tip 
I mean, his story is he, he called the establishment and made clear that the money that they wanted to leave was supposed to go to his favorite rest, uh, waitress and these other people that waited on this. And the restaurant told him, OK, this is you know, you're, you're going to be able to, to do this. She was then fired for telling him that what you were trying to accomplish it isn't going to be permitted. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe if he knew that there'd be a 7% taken off, maybe he'd add an extra 7% to the 4400 bucks. I, I guess the bottom line of all this is I, I think firing her for telling a customer w- how his money, how his tip is going to be distributed, that's where I think the restaurant is incredibly wrong. And this is, by the way, it's a restaurant in Bentonville, Arkansas. Some people are texting me, where, where is this locally? It's not. It's a place called The Oven and Tap in Bentonville, Arkansas. 855-616-1620. Gianni in Montello. Hi, Gianni. What do you think? Yes, uh- Hello. Good Hi. morning, Jeff. Hi. Or good afternoon, Jeff. Hey, listen. Um, no, I, I think the restaurant was out of order in firing her, um, and, and they de- they disclosed to the patron that um, uh, that, that, that the, the most of the money would go to her, minus seven percent. Is that correct? Do no, I, no. They, they, no, I think he told he told them that he wanted all the money to go to her and the other people that were actually the servers that night, and they didn't tell him that that wasn't going to be the case. And it was only after she. She told them that that wasn't the case that they fired her. Yeah, well, um, well, I, if if um, if she doesn't want to, um, you know, spread it with the, with the other the servers in that, mm-hmm. I, I think that's her. Um, I, I think that's her prerogative. Um, but but was it or it was not disclosed to him? Did she disclose that to to him when he in, she, she queried? Yeah, well, right. Uh, but, when, right yeah. When the customer queried her. You, well, my understanding of the facts, Gianni, well, customer. here's what happened. He, he, he's a regular there. He calls, he's bringing in this giant party, 30 some people. It's for the holidays. And they have this club, apparently, where they go around and they, they put in a large amount of money that, that is then sent for tips. He had called the restaurant, told him what he wanted to do, told him he wanted the money to go to his favorite waitress and to a couple of the other servers, wasn't told at all about the 7% or anything like that, wasn't told that you had to split tips. So he goes in, he gives the, the money. The restaurant, which then apparently on large groups has a case-by-case policy, the restaurant then decides, okay, we're, we're not going to let you keep it all. We're going to take our, our 7% or whatever off of it. She then says, okay, I, I really appreciate this. Just so you know, it's not all going to us. And she gets fired for simply disclosing that what he intended to have happen wasn't going to happen. Now, after he complained, the the restaurant then said, "Well, okay, we'll give, we'll have allow, allow the money to be distributed like you wanted." But they turn around and they fire her because she told them what was going to happen with his tip, which is what I I think you know, bothers me. Again, it's from the perspective of somebody who, from time to time, will say, "But what is the what's the policy? You know, what's." What, how do you handle tips? And actually, we adjust it from time to time. If you've gotten particularly good service, maybe that means giving an extra tip because you want to make sure the money is is going, you know, where you intend it to go. So if the idea is, hey, I want to make sure this person gets twenty bucks, maybe that means you increase it. But I, I guess the thing that's getting there all the bad attention is th- this idea the restaurant has that somehow the waitress was disloyal for explaining what was going to happen to the customer's tip to the customer, which I find to be absolutely 
ridiculous. Now, the good news of this is that the woman has now been hired somewhere else. So she's got another job and the restaurant's getting all sorts of bad press and is defending itself. But sometimes, like I say, if you don't want to get bad press, maybe you should think through the ramifications of this before you end up doing it. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. There's been a sort of disconnect between Melissa's last two newscasts, the one that started at 1230 and the one that started at 1. The 1231, she talked about Milwaukee making a bid for the 2024 Republican National Convention that would bring lots of dollars and stuff here. And then... Then at the one o'clock, she led with the breaking story of the day. We, we have now 192 homicides. Milwaukee has now eclipsed the all-time record number of homicides, and today is only December 14th. So you've got another two and a half weeks left. So who knows how, how many we're ultimately going to have before the end of the year. It prompted me to send out a tweet. And if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. 192 homicides and counting, plus over 10,000 stolen cars and counting in the city of Milwaukee so far this year. That's a great resume builder for bringing the Republican National Convention here in 2024 not. There, there is this, this sort of like this kind of disconnect that's there. Yeah, come on to Milwaukee. It's just, uh, you know, make sure you don't drive. You know, rental cars, well, they, you know, make sure you've got insurance if you get the rental car. And, well, yeah, the homicides are through the roof. But don't worry about that. Uh, Milwaukee submits a bid to host. Now, I think it would be great to have the Republican National Convention here in 2024. Believe me, I, I'd love it. But until you can figure out the major crime problems that we have going on here, it's not exactly something that is going to inspire, I think, people to want to come here and spend all sorts of money. But that, of course, is just me. All right. Let, let's switch gears on this one, too. We talked about this tipping thing uh, in the last hour. This is this is another one of these interesting sort of stories that's kind of off the beaten track, but it but attracts me. Um, I don't know if you have watched, if you have Netflix, I don't know if it's still the case this week, but over the course of the last month or two, the number one show on Netflix has been this this show, I think it's like eight parts, and it's called Squid Game. Squid Game, long story short, it, it, it comes out of Korea. And the, the plot of this, it, and it's, it's fictional, but it's a contest where 456 players, all of whom are in deep financial debt, sign up and they risk their lives to play a series of like deadly children's games for their chance to win this huge prize. And um, so that that that's the idea, and it, it's very very. I, I saw one episode, and candidly, I'm I'm not sure I have a desire to go back and, and watch more. There's just so much stuff that I really enjoy watching that, that this you know I I don't know it didn't hold my attention, but it's holding a lot of attention there, and it's it, it's views 
government and the capitalist system is this very dystopian sort of thing. It's a very, very dark sort of thing, and it has comments on society about how people are going to risk their lives to try to get money. And one of the things that happens in Squid Game, and I don't think I'm giving anything away because it's been around there for two months, is you play these games, and if you lose, they kill you. And, and then they, they raise the, the pot. So it's, again, it's this very sort of dark thing, but it's the idea of people doing very dangerous things, people risking their lives all to try to get out of financial debt. And in, in many cases, they're doing dehumanizing things and stuff like that. All right, which brings me to a story from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, of all places, a junior hockey game. Now, here here's the deal. At these, if you go to minor league hockey games or things like that, one of the things that you, you will find is that in order to get people to buy tickets, it's not just the games and stuff like that. Um, you, you'll see all sorts of promotions. If you go to minor league baseball games, for example, during the summer, and we have a lot of great minor league teams around, it, it seems that there's always some sort of, you know, special promotion. It's a fireworks thing or, or we've got this going on or we've got, you know, the, the stars of Leave It to Beaver are out there. You know, they do all these things to try to, you know, bring people in. You know, they'll, they'll have concerts after the, the shows and after the games and things like that. And that's not unlike, I mean, the Milwaukee Admirals are great at that. You know, they, it's, it's, you come to be fans of the team and things like that, but they also have all these other attractions that might tend to bring in more casual fans or things of the like. So here's what this, this hockey league did. They, they apparently cut a deal with a, a local bank. And the local bank ponied up a whole bunch of of money. The local bank ponied up several thousand dollars in singles. Okay, so that was the idea. They're, they've got thousands of dollars in singles. Uh, Five thousand dollar, five thousand one dollar bills. So, all right. Now, this wasn't just open though to random fans to come and, and try to scoop up the, the money. What they did was they, they reached out to area schools, all in the, the Sioux Falls area, and they invited teachers. Seven teachers would be selected to participate in a cash grab. So what they did is they took $5,001 bills. They dumped them onto this giant carpet that was put out at the ice on the ice between one of the, the periods. And then the seven teachers went out. They were all wearing helmets and stuff. And um, they they end up on their hands and knees scrambling to shove as many singles as they can into their pockets, into their, their sweatshirts, into, you know, you, you get the idea. So you've got seven of these, these school teachers that are there, and they're just all grabbing for as much cash as they can possibly grab for in whatever the period of time was. I don't know if it was a minute or two minutes or what this is. So th- they go do this. The person, the teacher that drew, and, and the idea is this money is supposed to be used. It, it's not going to belong to... The teacher, they don't get to pocket it. This is money that they're supposed to use to buy things for their classroom. 
Okay, so that's the whole premise behind this. So the thing goes off. Sioux Falls Stampede, a local hockey team, hosted the inaugural Dash for Cash. Money was donated by CU Mortgage Direct, a Sioux Falls lender. The event was billed as an opportunity for teachers to gather money for their classroom needs. Schools had to apply for the competition. Um, Teachers had to explain how they would use the money. So... The competition rules, put it in their shirt, pants, wherever. They can take as much money as they can grab during the time that we have during the intermission. Teachers, schools also receive $5 for every ticket they sold to the game. Okay, so the thing goes on as scheduled um, over the weekend. Um, one local high school teacher grabbed the most cash, $616. Um, he's going to put his winnings towards an e-sports program he runs for students. Fifth grade teacher, she managed to grab 592 bucks. She'll use the money on treats and decorations for the classrooms. Okay, so you get the idea. You get these teachers, they're there, they're on their hands and knees, they're scooping as much money as they possibly can. This is videoed. It goes viral. 7.7 million views on Twitter as of earlier this week. All right, so, so what is the controversy? Well, here's the headline in the Washington Post. South Dakota teachers competed for $1 bills on a hockey rink. Critics called the game terrible and dehumanizing. Um, the argument is this was dehumanizing, even dystopian. That's the college reading word for the day. Especially as teachers are paid relatively small salaries in South Dakota and nationwide, some compared the spectacle to the popular Netflix series Squid Games, in which the show's characters compete in deadly games to win a giant piggy bank full of cash. Um, terrible image. Teachers should never have to go through something like this to be able to get the resources they need, um, f- uh, whether it's here in South Sioux Falls or anywhere else in the United States. Okay, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The argument is, I guess, that it was dehumanizing for these teachers to be depicted on their hands and knees kind of scrambling for cash that was then going to be used for the classroom. Is this a legitimate complaint or is this an overreaction to which was a, a, I guess, a well-intentioned sort of thing? The hockey team thought that this would be kind of fun to watch people try to grab for cash. All right. Bad idea. Good idea. Is the controversy much ado about nothing or do critics have a good point? We shouldn't have teachers have to scramble around on the ice to grab dollar bills that are going to be used for their classrooms. 855-616-1620. I'll tell you where I come come down on this and we'll discuss in just a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Before we ring in the new year, let's take one last look back. The 10th Annual Wisconsin Sports Awards presents History Made, a celebration of Milwaukee's first title in 50 years and the best in high school, college, and professional sports across the state of Wisconsin. Join ESPN Wisconsin's Jen Lada and Wisconsin's biggest stars on Saturday, December 18th at 1 o'clock a.m., on WTMJ4, TMJ4, for the 10th Annual Wisconsin Sports Awards, presented by UW Credit Union jockey, Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, and Palermo's Pizza. Okay, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. All right. The the argument is that it was dehumanizing for this this hockey team to have this promotion where the bank 
dumps $5,000 worth of cash out on carpets at the center ice, and teachers go out, and they had to apply for this, and they get a chance to, and a lot of time, grab as many as much money as they can, and they get to keep it, and they get to use it for their classroom. And the argument is, oh, this is terrible. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, one of our texters kind of puts it in perspective where I feel, and that is that the fund police are out there again. I mean, I don't know how this is any different than going to, I don't know, a, a school festival. And the, the deal is, let's say they've got a dunk tank and you've got, you know, one of the teachers that's sitting in the dunk tank and they're raising money for whatever. And the whole idea is, hey, you know, you, you put in five dollars, you get to throw three softballs at the at the thing. And if you hit the bell, the dunk tank opens up and the teacher falls in. I mean, I, you've, you've seen that the, these are fundraising sort of things. It's now I, I mean, I guess are there other ways you could do it? Yeah, fair enough. Are does this is this a way to, to really successfully generate ticket sales? Well, apparently there there was a big deal because the, the whole idea was they had five dollar tickets and the schools, you know, knowing you know Mr. So and So is going to participate in this, they sold tickets and so a lot of people came out to see Mr. So and So participate and and cheer him on. I, I guess I I look at this whole thing and think sometimes we we really do overthink this stuff. I mean I understand the way some people want to view it is oh this is terrible. You've got these teachers and they don't have enough for their classrooms and they're reduced to being on their hands and knees and they're groveling and they're trying to grab this cash. To, To me, first of all, nobody made anybody do this. This was something that people volunteered for. This was something that people signed up for. This was an opportunity that people committed to, to do, saying, hey, you know, we, we've got this particular need, and so we want a chance to do it. I guess I actually look at this and think I, the, the, the spirit, I believe, that this was offered was, you know, a, a spirit of, of fun, um, Jeff, as long as the teachers aren't out there taking each other out and causing harm, I say go for it. They can always spend, they could have always declined doing it. You know, teachers spend plenty of their own money in their classrooms. Why wouldn't they want free money? Well, yeah, I guess, you know, that's, that's the it. it. Nobody, nobody said, oh, this, you know, here, you have to do this. And my guess is the teachers that volunteered to participate in this, and it was a volunteer, they were pleased to represent their school. Hey, this is a great way. You know, we've got this need. This is a free 500 or 600 bucks or whatever. And here, we're, we're going to go out and we're going to have some fun doing it. Again, I, I think my, my dunk tank analogy is, is probably a pretty good one. That's, Again, that that's like it, or or a deal like, hey, you know, um, we're raising money for this or that or the other, and you know what? If, if we get X amount of donations here, Mister So and So is going to shave his beard, or Mister So and So is going to shave his head, or you know, something like that. It's a fundraising thing that has been done, you know, for for a long time, and I guess I don't see this as being any more dehumanizing or demoralizing or anything like that. I, I think most people who participated in this viewed it as fun. There are people, of course, that are out there that want to, again, second-guess everything that goes on and say, oh, this is just kind of a terrible sort of thing. But, you know, bottom line is 
Nobody had to do this. They did it. My guess is the teachers were thrilled to participate. They were thrilled to go out there and get people to cheer them on. People came to the Junior Hockey League to cheer those teachers on. And it wasn't until afterwards when you had some of the Internet trolls that are out there that were tisk-tisking and saying how terrible this was. Well, then it becomes a national issue. To me, this is one of the categories, if you're ever familiar with the old Bill Murray movie Stripes, this is one where you just want to say, lighten up, Francis. Back with more in just a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Here's a couple texts. Jeff, the reasoning is ridiculous. The teachers are competing against each other for the most money, and they sign up for it. The Green Bay Gamblers of the same league have done this for years with various banks. They also hold jersey auctions, teddy bear tosses, and other events to help out the community at large. It seems some people have nothing better to do than complain. Um, are they, in fact, opening their wallets? Now, one of our texters says, well, it, isn't it kind of humiliating to have the teachers on their hands and knees trying to scoop up money? And I guess here, here's the perhaps the, the way to end this. Jeff. Green Green Bay Gamblers, this is a separate text, they do this. My sister, she's a teacher, she has participated. This is not humiliating, it's a great event. The students and families go to the games, it's a great community event, everybody has fun. No, I think it's only some of the people that are watching this from the outside who don't get it, and in many cases, you know, aren't even thinking about contributing to the schools. They're the ones that want to tisk tisk it. Um, So I guess people can decide, it's getting bad publicity, But this is one where, at least I think, as far as the people that participated, everybody thought it was a great event, and apparently they do the same thing in Green Bay. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So last evening, we went to... um, my wife's grandson, my grandson, we went to, uh, he's, he goes to uh, Sussex Hamilton High School, and we went to his, he participates in the arts, and he's uh, involved in choir, and so we went to their choir concert. It was, it was actually, it was very, very nice. We've got a couple other kids' concerts coming up Thursday, and I think next Tuesday or something like that, so it's it's always fun to go see that, and the kids at Hamilton did a great job. So uh, we, we go to the concert, come back at home around like 9.15 or so, and I, I turn on the Monday night football game, and it's... I've I, Arizona playing um, Arizona playing the Los Angeles Rams. Now you know normally I'd say okay this is the Monday night football game you know eh. but uh, this one was particularly interesting because of course Arizona is was at least going into the game they were leading the Packers by a game for the number one seed in the NFC. That that's a big deal because the one. Under the new rules, uh, with the expanded playoffs, the top team in each conference, the NFC and the AFC, gets a bye. Used to be the top two teams, but now it's just the top team. So getting a bye, especially given how beaten up the, the Packers are and the injuries they have, not having to play a week is a big deal. On top of that, if you're the number one team, you have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Now, I understand you know, last year, Tampa Bay came into Lambeau Field in January and ended up beating the Packers. But but still, if you're going to go to the Super Bowl, you'd, you'd much rather have the road to the Super Bowl run through the frozen tundra than you would having to go to Arizona or to, um, you know, wherever, Los Angeles or Tampa Bay and, and pick up a win. Not saying you couldn't do it, but you'd rather play at home. So getting the number one seed is a really, really big deal. So when Arizona got upset 
at home by the Los Angeles Rams yesterday, it kind of shook up the whole playoff picture because now the Packers at 10 and 3, which is the same record as the Arizona Cardinals have 10 and 3, and also the same record as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have 10 and 3, the way it works when you look at like playoff seedings and things like that and tiebreakers, if the Packers win out, that would be winning their remaining four games against Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, and Minnesota, two of which are on the road, two of which are at home. If the Packers were to win out, they would end up 14-3, and three, and they would end up in the number one position. They'd be in the number one position because they beat Arizona. So assuming Arizona and the Packers end up with the same record, Packers hold the tiebreaker over Arizona because they won. Um, the Packers also hold the tiebreaker over Tampa Bay because the the next you know the, the next criteria you would look at is re- a record in the conference and the Packers again assuming both teams won out the Packers have a better record in conference than Tampa Bay has so they'd get the number one seat so it was really a big deal when uh, Los Angeles from if you're a Packers fan it was really a big deal when Los Angeles went on to upset Arizona now. So I guess the bottom line is if you're playing for the bye and the top seeding and home field advantage and all that, which is a a big deal, the, the good news is with four weeks left in the season, the Packers hold their own destiny. You know, if they win out, they uh, they, they get all that. Now, it's I, I don't know that it's any sort of guarantee that they're going to win out. They've had some catastrophic injuries, especially on the offensive line, but they've still got some really, really talented players out there. And the idea and the prospect of getting the number one seed now really gives them something to play for. So it was a big night last night, and um, having controlling your destiny, again, if the Packers can figure out how to beat Baltimore and Baltimore's quarterback is injured, Cleveland's kind of been up and down, the Vikings beat the Packers in Minneapolis, but I think it might be a different story when they come to Lambeau. And then Detroit on the road, the last game of the year, Detroit's kind of a, a train wreck, but you never know. But that's what's really cool. If you're a Packers fan, four more wins, and they guarantee home field advantage throughout the playoffs, and the road to the Super Bowl becomes a lot easier. All right. It's been interesting. Um, Joe Biden is wrapping up his first year in in office. The poll numbers, and, and we talk about this a lot, you, you have to take poll numbers with a grain of salt. I know I know there are people out there that just don't trust poll numbers at all. I I, I think polling has had kind of a, a bad a, a sort of a bad series of time. But in general, particularly when it comes to Donald Trump, pollsters haven't, I think, picked up and did a really bad job of really picking up the the support and the level of the support that was out there for Donald Trump. But in general, I, I think pollsters get it right more than they get it wrong. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. And that's what I, I, I kind of always say with this with this conversation. So understanding that there are people who just don't believe the polls and reject everything they say, um, Joe Biden, as he finishes his first year, essentially, his poll numbers are 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 pretty much awful, with the exception of of Donald Trump. Joe Biden has the lowest approval numbers of any modern day president at this point in time in his in his presidency. 
and he's polling, depending where you look at it, he, he's he's in the low 40s, 41, 42, 43% approve, and he's underwater, 50-plus percent disapprove. Now, what this means for the midterm elections, who knows? What it means for 2024, if Biden were to run again, who knows? But right now, his presidency is kind of stuck in, in the mud. And you, you've got, I think, a lot of reasons for that. You've got inflation, which is, at least at this point in time, pretty much out of control, and people are dissatisfied with the economy. You've got a president who, who rode into office on this idea that he was going to be able to somehow get you know COVID-19 and coronavirus under control. And if anything, we're seeing that that, for whatever reason, that that has not been the case. And that, you know, after a couple of years of this, people are just sick of, of the pandemic and they're, they're taking it out on Biden. So you've got the inflation, which is out of control. You've got you know COVID-19, which shows no signs of abating. I mean, you look at the headlines and it's people are talking about about, oh, this winter might be worse than last winter. Okay, and there's no question in my mind that the response to COVID is the big thing that torpedoed Donald Trump um, in before November. Other stuff happened afterwards, which has made, my opinion, Trump unelectable moving forward. But if it were not for COVID, I think the 2020 election would have had a different result. So you've got COVID. You've got inflation. You've got the mess that goes on at the border. You have issues with Afghanistan. The list goes on and on. So I understand why, you know, he's polling in the low 40s. I, I get it. You might say it's not fair. But but I get it. That that's just kind of the reality. People are unhappy, and they tend to take that out on the party in power. Um, and of course, you you've got crime that that is out of control as well. And that's you know when when they poll on the questions of how do you think the president is handling the crime issue, and he does not do well at all. There was a piece in the New York Times on on Sunday. Why does Biden seem so stuck? And I, I will summarize it. It essentially argues that that Joe Biden is the most successful president at this point in time in his presidency since Ronald Reagan, that he's accomplished all this great stuff, that he set this country on the, this great on this great footing, he's done all these wonderful things, and he's not getting any sort of credit for it. And the piece goes on to kind of say that, well, the, part of the implication, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, is the American people just, we're, we're, we're dumb. We don't realize what a great president Joe Biden has been. Otherwise, his poll numbers wouldn't be stuck like at 41 or 42 or 43 percent. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, here, here, here is the question. A year into his presidency, um, is Joe Biden... Is he not getting credit for the the great job that he's done, or is his presidency shaping up to be a failure? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. All right. Is he just is he just the victim of circumstances, some bad luck? Who knew that there was going to be you know the Delta variant? Who knew that there was going to be Omicron? That's not his fault. Afghanistan's not his fault. Inflation? Well, inflation's a, not really a big deal. All right. Is is Biden not getting the credit that he deserves? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So 
so very glad to have you with us. 855-616-1620. This piece in the New York Times is like, well, I mean, Joe, Joe Biden, the, the approval numbers are, are, are not great. The average poll, I think about 42% approval, 50% disapproval. And that, that's the average of the polls that are out there. And, and the thinking in the New York Times is like, well, how can people not see what a wonderful president Joe Biden has been? 855-616-1620. David in Mequon. Uh, good afternoon, John. Hi, David. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, there is a huge, uh, big disconnect. Uh, it, it, he's done with his presidency, and under a year is just unmanageable. Uh, between you brought up between with the economy, inflation, and you know Afghanistan. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And what I what I fear is he keeps doubling down on everything, and. Uh, and then, you know, expect it to get better when it's actually just been a complete failure. I mean, we literally have, we never had supply chain issues uh, as far as I'm, you know, been alive. Right. This is a completely new term uh, that, that, was, that wasn't even existing up until this year. Um, in addition to that, a lot of uh, listeners, especially uh, younger listeners, they never experience inflation uh, like we are having right now, and that really does hurt not only a low to moderate income people, but seniors as well, where they're on fixed income. Right. And and you know, you look at the prices of going to the grocery store; people recognize it, and they're not going to, uh, you know, it's nothing to be ignored. And he has done a horrendous job uh, with that. And you know, first it was transitory. And now we're throwing that word out, and yeah. now it's like, well, it's going to it's going to moderate eventually. Yeah. Well, when is eventually? Where, where's the off ramp? Well, that that's it. You know, thanks uh, for call, David. You know, and, it, and it's interesting because it, it's not just goods that you see that this huge spike in inflation, uh, and and you can want to write that off. Okay, so maybe there's maybe this is due to a supply chain problem, and you don't have enough you don't have enough goods, so you got too much money that are chasing too few goods. Okay, I understand that, but you're also seeing the the inflationary push on on services as well, stuff that's independent of the supply chain. And those costs are going up, too. I understand there's this tendency to want to say, okay, who cares about inflation? Well, the average voter cares about inflation, at least I think, when you go to the grocery store and what you find is that you're paying a couple dollars more for a pound of bacon, for example, than you paid a year ago. Or, you know, gasoline that was $2.09 in the summer of 2020 is now, you know, $3.16. That's in Milwaukee, but it's also more elsewhere. But, I mean, I think, you know, you've got inflation that's going on. You have Afghanistan, which is a mess. You've got the idea with um, uh, again, you've got everything that's going on with Russia that's a mess. And and let's face it, people are tired of COVID. And I think, as I said earlier, and I firmly believe this, there, there were, I believe there were two reasons why Donald Trump lost in November of 2020. Now, I think his behavior after that Things like the Capitol riots and the refusal to accept the electoral loss, I, I think that that's made him toxic. I, I just I don't think he can ever win another election. I understand some people might disagree with that, but that's what I believe. But but you know pre January sixth insurrection or whatever you want to call it, pre refusal to accept the election results. What really I think cost Trump in twenty twenty was two things. First of all, 
the response to COVID. I think people were sick of COVID. They did not think he handled it well enough. They were tired that we were dealing with this. And so Biden came in on this promise that, hey, we're, we're going to solve this problem. Now, a year from now, just like I'm not sure that the, I'm not sure that the explosion of COVID in November of 2020 was, was the fault of Donald Trump, but you, you can argue that, okay, we're looking at even, maybe even worse situations in December of 2021. And maybe you say that's not fair to hang that on Biden, but Okay, if it wasn't fair to hang it on Biden, maybe it wasn't fair to hang it on Trump either. But the bottom line is, like Harry Truman said, the buck stops there. So I think Biden, he got this, this I think, initial rosy blush that, hey, he's somebody different than Trump. He's going to take care of COVID. Well, now it's, it's been a rough year when it comes to COVID, and it's looking like it's going to be an even rougher year moving on. More of that coming up in the next hour of the program. On top of that, and a number of texters are making this point. I, I, Joe Biden, I don't think people voted for Biden based on the fact that, that they love Joe Biden. Oh, this guy is, is going to be great. He was perceived as a moderate and he has not governed as a moderate. He has taken a huge turn to the left, despite the fact that he really didn't have a mandate to do that. Secondly, I think a lot of people voted for Biden simply because they viewed him as a superior alternative to Trump. They were tired of the chaos. They were tired of the the tweeting. They were just tired of the Trump management style and the bullying and all that stuff. And so he was the alternative, just like I believe one of the things that catapulted Trump into the presidency in 2016 was that he was the anti-Hillary Clinton. You know, people just he was sort of an unknown commodity. People didn't like Hillary Clinton. So, you know, Trump won some states that he wasn't expected to win. In this particular case, Trump, while I think he perhaps outperformed pollsters, he lost some states that, you know, he would have needed to win in order to be reelected president because people were just tired of the act. All right, so it wasn't a huge mandate for Joe Biden. Biden comes in, acts like he's got this huge mandate, and tries to move big time to the left. And and so far, it just largely hasn't worked out. And again, the New York Times is saying, well, you should get credit for all these different things. I think in the stuff that really matters to people's pocketbooks and people's lives, he's not... He's not moving the needle. Now, does that mean you can't change it around? Well, of course not. There's a lot of times in one year in politics till the midterms or three years in politics is a lifetime. But once you get stuck in a rut, it's very, very difficult to get those cartwheels out of that rut. And the truth is, Biden's got problems, and I don't see those numbers changing. Now, does that mean that he's not going to get reelected four years from now if he runs? Well, of course not. And, you know, there's still the big variable on the Republican side is what is the role of Donald Trump? Because, again, I, I don't see Trump as I don't see Trump as electable in 2024. Donald Trump might not agree with that assessment, but as far as the Biden poll numbers, I think he's just getting what he deserves. And I do believe that's probably legitimate that, you know, if you put 10 people in a room, four are going to approve of his job performance, five are going to say no, and one is not going to have an opinion. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So, Melissa Barkley, you know what? It is now, uh, it is now like Tuesday, 
And one of the, the big mysteries, at least as far as I know, that you know, nothing stays secret anymore. You know, what once once there's something that's out there, we've got all these investigative reporters and you've got the Internet and stuff, and, and we're able to get the results of something, and yet it's been almost, well, going on 48 hours. And you know what is still a big mystery to me? Uh, what's that? Who is the Aaron Rodgers lookalike? Have we figured out we, who that guy we is? We actually have, and we've talked to him. Well, you've talked to him. Yes, okay. We did. All right. Yes. Who is the Aaron Rodgers lookalike? Um, do I do I reveal that here? Oh, or is this a secret? Well, we're, we're... well, we are revealing it on the afternoon. Oh, show. okay. All we right. Did, we Good. did get a hold of him. We you found, found out him. who he was. Okay. Where he's from? Okay. He's not from the U.S. Oh, well, I don't okay. want to divulge too much information. Oh, okay. but he's he's uh, he's pretty intrigued by all the attention that he's getting. Okay, so, so all right, so that is what that do we know? What time afternoon. you guys are doing that this uh, afternoon? Let me look here. We will be talking about that. Well, right out of the gate. All right, so ten right after. Okay, the news. so for people who were wondering, what I was wondering is who is the Aaron Rodgers doppelganger <laughs> that we show that we you have tracked him down. Yes, we have. Okay, because I, I I hadn't I hadn't been able to find anybody. I mean, I'm not seeing any reports of this. I mean, you see lots of pictures and stuff, but. You guys know who he is. We know who he is. We know where he lives. And we did a okay. Zoom, a Zoom okay. call with him earlier. Today. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, you got it. Well, that's you. You want to be listening. Yes. You want to be listening any all the time that's between fine. three and six. But all right. That's good. Okay. See, we have we've got that out of the way. Tune in. That's a great tease. You'll find out who the other Aaron Rodgers yes. is. The guy that actually looked a little bit more clean cut than Aaron did. But he probably <laughs> does. Yeah, well, yeah. well, he did, you know, but he but he probably doesn't throw a football like Aaron does. Well, so, I have to tell you, when when we saw him on Zoom, we're like, whoa, it, it, he really does look like him. Got he, it. He had his hat on and everything. So okay, well there there you go. Three ten Wisconsin's afternoon news. It is the question that people have been asking not only all over the state of Wisconsin but all over the world. Who's the guy that is the dead ringer for Aaron Rodgers? All right, we will answer that in about an hour or so. This is I, I know that there's lots of people who love to meet people online. And I understand that that has been, you know, meeting online has been the the foundation for some successful relationships. I I, I get it. At the same time, there's all these stories about out there that convince me that if I was ever in the dating pool, which I have no intention of being any time ever again, um, that is no way I would do it online. It's stories like this. Here's the headline, Journal Sentinel. Woman charged with repeatedly running over a man whom she met online on the northwest side. Huh, this sounds like a relationship made somewhere short of heaven. A 23-year-old Milwaukee woman has been charged with fatally running over a man repeatedly earlier this month. Lydia Carmona Cartagena faces a count of first-degree intentional homicide with a dangerous weapon, a 2011 Cadillac SUV. She made an initial court appearance on Monday as being held on bail. According to the criminal complaint, neighbors heard and saw a commotion near North 60th and Stark Streets on the morning of December 9th. It appeared Carmona and the victim, 41-year-old Chad Wilson, were arguing before she got into the Cadillac and drove at him several times until she struck him, then ran over him several more times. <laughs> so, it's okay, if you're not dead the first time I've hit you, I'm going to back up over you a couple times. Much of the attack was caught on video from a nearby church. Carmona was arrested at her home a short time later with Wilson's Cadillac. Well, you drive over the guy, you keep the car. She told police she had met him online about 24 hours earlier, and they had been hanging out and doing drugs. 
Ah, the wonders of the Internet. She said Wilson got angry with her for putting a lighter and cups on his table. Okay, so they meet online. They end up doing drugs. He gets mad at her for putting a lighter and cups on his table. She demanded, and she demanded he take her home. They were on the way, she said, when Wilson stopped and made her get out of the car at 60th and Stark. He then got out himself. Carmona told police she took a knife she had with her and stabbed Wilson several times before he disarmed her. Now, see, this this is not this is not the type of stuff you hear when you hear all those ads for like the Internet dating services. Okay, she told police she took a knife she had with her and stabbed him several times before he disarmed her. That's when she took the keys, returned to the Cadillac, and began driving towards him. You take my knife, I'm going to grab your car keys. She told police she ran over him extra times to make sure he was dead. She told police she ran over him extra times to make sure he was dead. Hmm. Not a lot of remorse there. After leaving the scene, once in Wilson's car, she returned, saw a bystander calling 911. She went up to Wilson's body, closed his eyes, and drove off again when she heard approaching sirens. I, you cannot make this stuff up. I guess the, the bottom line of all this, and there's sort of many takeaways from this, but one is, I, I don't know if you're going to meet people online Maybe you want to do it like in public places or something. There's just so many lessons there. And I'm sure there's about four Wagner's rules of life that got violated in this particular situation. But um, she apparently brought a knife and a Cadillac SUV to this particular battle. And I love the line. She ran over him multiple times because she wanted to make sure she was he was dead. Um, mission accomplished. Okay, when we come back. Are you thinking of flying anywhere in the near future? Well, you might want to be aware of what some politicians think should happen. I'll explain. We'll discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Hey, this weekend is your first chance to hear the brand new WTMJ holiday radio show. It's a Wonderful Career, starring our very own Gene Miller and the WTMJ players. Plus, surprise visits from some of your favorite personalities around the Badger State. Tune in this Saturday at 4 and Sunday at 9 for the WTMJ Holiday Radio Show. It's a Wonderful Career, sponsored by Gruber Law Offices, Drake & Associates, and Dave Drake Camp Heating, all benefiting Capco's Kids to Kids Toy Drive. Got to absolutely love that. Okay. There, as, as we were talking about in one of the last segments, uh, COVID is not going away. Now, I, I, the the reality is because of the exploding numbers, more people, I think, are, are rethinking their vaccination choices. But the, the truth of the matter is, I, I think it kind of is what it is. I mean, we have in Wisconsin about 60 percent of people who are vaccinated. I suspect that number is going to go up a bit. But candidly, think the people who've made the decision, as I've said before, to not get vaccinated, they're, they're kind of dug in on that. And so, you know, maybe, maybe you'll get it up to 62, maybe you'll get it up to 63%. Um, maybe if Joe Biden is somehow able to convince the Supreme Court that his requirement that employers must impose a vaccine is somehow 
constitutional, something that I don't think it is. But, you know, maybe you can get it up a little bit higher. But the the truth of the matter is, I I think people, for whatever reason, have made their decisions on vaccinations. And and we're going to we're going to hit the ceiling on that again, whether it's 60 percent of the population or 65 percent or 68 percent or whatever that number is, we're, we're going to hit that. And as far as people who decide to get booster shots, well, of those that are vaccinated, it, it's it's not going to be all those people. And pretty soon I, I fully expect that in order to be considered fully vaccinated, you're not only going to have had to have your initial round of shots, but you're also going to have to have your boosters. I, I think that's just where we're coming. All right. But the truth is, I, the reality is we're going to have to figure out how we live with COVID moving on, because I think as this virus and as the variants come out, I think it's very, very likely that you are going to see upticks and outbreaks of COVID, I don't know, pretty much on, on a yearly basis. Hope I'm wrong, but I, I think that that's going to be the case um, in areas like ours where it gets colder and people start to be inside more. You're, you're just going to see that. And you know, I think that you're seeing that kind of across the country. Now, there is a good development in addition to the vaccinations, and that's Pfizer is announcing today that they're continuing to have really, really good success with the these pills that they're, they're planning to roll out at some point in time. And just like the uh, oral drugs that they can give you for the flu, that if you take it early enough, it can, if not eliminate the flu, it can significantly lessen the impact of your flu symptoms. Well, the, these new pills that they say that if you, you know, catch catch it in the first couple days um, after you've shown symptoms of uh, COVID, what happens is it significantly reduces the symptoms that you're going to have and significantly reduces the chance that you're going to have to be hospitalized, which at the end of the day, I, I think is ultimately going to end up being our goal, recognizing that COVID is going to be a part of our life for the near future and probably the, the far off future as well. So the goal becomes trying to minimize the consequences as much as you can. But that's the reality and that's where we are now. And people are, in fact, I think, dug in on the vaccinations. Right now, in order to fly on an airplane, you need to wear a mask. That's the rule. You go into an airport, you've got the federal government, the federal rules say you have to have a mask on. You get on an airplane, the rules say you have to have a, a mask on. And there's really no, no choice about it. You can think it's silly. You cannot like it. You can resent it. But those are what the rules are. And candidly, I don't see the Biden administration rolling back those rules anytime soon. You can argue, hey, I'm fully vaccinated. I've got my booster shot. There's really no significant risk. I appreciate that argument in theory. Doesn't matter. The Biden administration isn't going anywhere with that. There are a number of Democrats, though, who want to take it one step farther. Um, Here's the story. There are apparently a number of members of Congress are pushing the Biden administration to not only maintain the you must wear a mask if you are going to fly, but they are also pushing the Biden administration to ban air travel for anyone who is not fully vaccinated. Let me say that again. If you are not fully vaccinated, you would not be allowed to get on an airplane. Now, right now, if you want to fly internationally, you, you've got to be vaccinated. That That's the rule. To, to go out of the country, to come back in the country. But if you are unvaccinated, you can still get on an airplane. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we ratchet it up to the next step? 
in addition to requiring masks on planes, should we say nobody who is unvaccinated is allowed to fly? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. No, Jeff, I don't believe in the vaccinations. If it were effective, why did I hear on your radio station that our COVID numbers in Wisconsin are as high as last year? Um, if we are at sixty percent vaccinated in the state, the numbers should be nowhere near that high. I don't believe that the vaccinations work. Well, I I, I believe that the vaccinations work. The, the large number of people who are hospitalized, which is what I, I think you got to be concerned about. I mean, it's if somebody. It, it's the hospitalizations, which is primarily the people who are in that high risk, those high risk groups. They're the ones that you have to protect. It's like I say, I, I think COVID is going to be here for the foreseeable future. So the question becomes, how can you stop the people that are most likely to have a really bad result from, from getting it, recognizing that a lot of people are in fact going to get it, but you know, they're going to have mild cases or whatever, which is where I think the vaccinations come in. Having said that, I think this is not only illegal, but I think it's a stunningly bad idea. A number of people are saying just, you know, you know, you talk about killing the airline industry. If you get to a situation where you're telling, I don't know, 30 percent, 35 percent of the population that they can no longer get on airplanes unless they make the decision to get vaccinated as a way of forcing them to get vaccinated. Well, I mean, just imagine what that's going to do to air travel. See, here's the, the thing. And here's my big objection to it. I think. We've been told for the better part of going on two years now that you've got to follow the science. Right, so my question is, for some of these politicians who are saying we should require vaccinations before you get on planes, we have been flying for the last two years without people either before we had the vaccinations or for the last year with some people have been vaccinated and some haven't. Is there any empirical evidence which says that getting on an airplane and traveling on the airplane, you are likely to be infected with it or likely to be affected to infect somebody else. Has air travel, is there any evidence at all that suggests that air travel has been responsible for the spread of COVID in any sort of significant way? Now, I, I, I haven't seen anything that suggests that. Haven't seen anything that suggests that, not saying there's not, but before you could single out, say, air travel and say, we're going to go after this particular industry and we're going to say to this industry that you can't do this until, you know, the only people that can participate are the vaccinated as a starting point before you even get into all the constitutional issues about regulating interstate travel. The first thing would be to say, where is the empirical evidence? That's sort of like some of these cities that are rolling out these requirements that only people who are vaccinated can go into restaurants or bars. Well, my, my question is, where is the evidence that says that people going into restaurants or bars, for example, that that has significantly contributed to the spread of COVID. Matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it's really not the restaurants or bars. If you want to look at where the real spread of COVID is, it's, it's kind of like the house parties. It's the private gatherings. So if you say to a bar, okay, well, you're, that's only for the vaccinated. You know, are you really accomplishing anything if the people, instead of, you know, four people going out to a bar, those four people could just get together in somebody's house. I mean, are you really accomplishing anything? That's what I think you have to look at.
that. And when it comes to saying only vaccinated on airplanes, I'm sorry, I, I think it's a non-starter legally, but it's also should be a non-starter unless you can demonstrate empirically that air travel over the last two years has been a significant source of spread of COVID. And I just don't think there's any numbers to justify it. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll find out what Eric and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.